Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Dr. Simon. And the show, as always, uh, is entitled The Stories We Live By. And um, I'm hoping to be joined sometime soon by uh, Dr. Jim Morrison, uh, my friend and uh, uh, on this show <laughs> for a number of uh, episodes, my alter ego. Um, I want to talk tonight about something that grew out of, the, the show that grew out of a conversation I had online uh, by email with Jim. Uh, we agreed that during the uh, shutdown of our government, something was taking place that frightened both of us. And what frightened us was something irrational was operating at the level of the highest seats of power in our government. Congress was in the thrall of individuals who, to us, were acting irrational. And we both agreed that irrationality uh, that seems to be destructive that has no creative end or purpose is really terrifying. And it's terrifying for people like uh, Jim and I, and I think for millions of others who may not articulate it in the same way, because we are living in an age of science and the notion that we are a rational people and we live in a rational society governed by laws that have a rationale that we're reasonable uh, is, is basically what we see the glue that holds us together. It's certainly what makes democracy possible. The idea that people with very different viewpoints can find a way to govern themselves by being reasonable with one another and coming to compromise. And here was something that was, to us, a kind of a juggernaut, anger, uh, a kind of a violence, and I'll discuss, well, I'll say it now. Uh, I think that so much of what has happened uh, within the Republican and to a degree the Democratic Party uh, was racial, that uh, I keep hearing from people, we've lost our country. Um, and while it settles in the Republican Party, I think there's a widespread notion. We've lost our country. Uh, what country did we lose? And certainly, I think the country we've lost is a white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant-dominated uh, republic. And it's gone. It's gone. And the only way it can come back uh, is if there's some kind of a mass upheaval and a destruction uh, and somebody comes to power who will be a truly charismatic and destructive force. Now, whether this is going to happen or not, I don't know. And by the way, while I see the, uh, the, the, the danger emerging reflected in the Republican Party at this point, it's certainly there's a lot of it on the left, um, but it has nothing to do with the specifics of being Republican or Democrat or liberal or independent. I'm going to talk tonight about this kind of irrationality, this kind of 
monstrousness or potential monstrousness because the monstrousness really hasn't happened full-blown in the United States yet and one of my goals with a show like this uh, is to mobilize a kind of a reasonable rational caring creative alternative uh, that pushes back against the forces that are irrational in their hunger in their fear and in their hatred of something that they can't compromise with or can't accept so when we talk tonight we'll talk about monstrousness and I want to define monster in a second we're going to talk about monstrousness uh, and the consequences of monsters um, that are almost universal in human history um, perhaps the greatest piece of monstrousness uh, was the, the uh, rise of Hitler and the Nazi, power, Nazi power, uh, party. Uh, an entire powerful country, its army and its generals, who knew better uh, than to fight a war led by uh, what was an essentially an irrational individual, whose decisions in many ways cost the Germany uh, victory in the war, um, went along with this kind of uh, monster. And the party and the people who swept the power uh, and killed off its opposition, their opposition, um, in ruthless ways that can only be described, uh, according to my definition, as a being monstrous. Uh, China um, was attacked by Japan, and we saw uh, in World War II a horrendous monstrous monstrosity as the, Rush, the Japanese army swept into parts of China uh, and, and, and exemplified in the rape of Nanking, uh, where rape and torture and mutilation of women and children became a means of... A, uh, causing terror and the collapse of any kind of opposition to the Japanese army. Um, the great leaders of China who came to power after World War II, Mao Zedong and his party, uh, who caused the starvation of up to 25, 30 million people to advance his power and prove his ideology was the only one way for uh, human beings to live. Similarly, uh, his uh, communist counterpart in Russia, uh, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, again, maybe 30 million people were destroyed uh, without regard to their lives, to their person, to their happiness, to their creativity, uh, to whom they loved or how they might have wished to live, uh, to advance the power of Stalin and those individuals who are uh, marched with him. So the Republican Party now is small potatoes when it comes to monstrousness. But it seems to be endemic as a potential in human behavior. Now what's a monster? And I want to talk a little about the history of monsters uh, in the literal of form as they appear in um, media, 
and they appear in literature. A monster is a being that looks human, but doesn't behave towards all other human beings as if they have any value except to satisfy whatever need that particular human-appearing being has. So that the causing of pain is irrelevant to the aims and the ends and the means of what I call a monster. There is a thirst and a hunger and a torture within monsters so that uh, uh, there is a kind of a temper tantrum. It can be controlled, it can be directed, but it is a child's view of throwing a fit, if you will, to get what it wants, regardless of who gets hurt, including the, the monster who throws the fit. What is so interesting, historically, is that whether they're monsters, political monsters that I've just talked about, or whether they're monsters such as Dracula or Frankenstein uh, or the zombies that I really want to spend some time discussing, um, uh, ultimately, what they destroy is themselves. That in seeing others as having no value, they see others as monsters, as alter visions, as projections of their own selves, unable to see the humanity in others, and hence the humanity in themselves, and ultimately they destroy and are destroyed by their own actions. Now, what's so fascinating to me is that when you go back in history, uh, one of the better books that I've read, uh, and I've read it twice, once I read it as a teenager in school, and now I read it again with a different kind of eye, was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula is a monster. He needs human blood. And to get it, he will take it from anyone uh, that uh, he, he wills to take that blood. What is interesting about Dracula and vampires, and this really uh, has its modern version in the TV show The Vampire Diaries, which is now in its fourth or fifth season, and which I watched a couple of episodes, and for some reason I just couldn't connect to it, so I stopped watching. There's a tremendous sexual hunger that's expressed, and Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula occurred during the Victorian era when there was a tremendous amount of sexual repression. And so Dracula has a number of wives who are voracious in not only their need for blood, but are sirens, they're succubus, they are uh, vampires who suck the life out of men uh, with all kinds of wonderful sexual uh, 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 expression that's involved. And the price they pay is to live in darkness. They can't come into the light. They can't look at the sun. All of these monsters uh, are, are um, trapped. They're trapped. And ultimately, they're destroyed. Uh, von Helsing uh, is a scientist. And what the book is saying is that ultimately, rationality and science finds a way to defeat the hungry, wild, uh, 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 Dracula. He is tamed with a stake through his heart and done, done, turns to dust. 
Uh, in the 50s, there was a tremendous amount of monsters that began to come from outer space or were created by our anxiety in relation to nuclear explosions. One of my favorite films, I've seen it a half a dozen times, I watch parts of it whenever it's on, is Them. Uh, the, the notion uh, that uh, genetics can be altered uh, by an atomic bomb and the result being uh, large ants that are monsters. They are rapacious. Uh, they seek out sugar and they destroy uh, and suck the life out of any human being or any animal that comes in their path. But ultimately, they're destroyed by science and by rationality. It overcomes them. There are so many aspects of monsters uh, uh, in, in the media. Uh, the Star Wars trilogy is a fabulous uh, uh, expression of the war between the monstrous and the human, between humanity and humanity run amok. Armies of cloned creatures uh, under the Sith Master uh, to destroy the world, all the worlds, and bring them under domination. Uh, a kind of a uber-Hitler in space uh, who has gone over to the dark side, to something dark and evil, whereas light uh, and love and friendship ultimately uh, defeat them. But cloned armies, faceless and all looking the same, marching monstrously uh, against humanity and all of those other more humanistic species that have not given up and tried to stand against the, the monster armies. What am I saying then? What am I saying is that there seems to be something within our psyche where we recognize the human potential to become monstrous. And we then create in literature and we create in the media an alternative to ourselves that is not us, but we recognize on some unconscious level is us if we allow ourselves to be transformed and move over to the dark side. Now, what makes the zombie movie, particularly the War on Z, so fascinating to me, and now I'm not talking about the movie specifically. The movie disappointed me profoundly because ultimately it turns out to be a movie that could be called Brad Pitt Saves the World, which cheapened the real message uh, uh, and the symbolic value of the movie uh, that was presented in the book, The War Z, The Z, Z Wars. In the Z-Wars, human beings become infected by a virus. And once uh, somebody is affected by the virus, they die and come alive, so they are undead. And I should add that all of the monsters, uh, Frankenstein and uh, uh, Dracula, all of these are undead creatures. And I love that word, undead. Uh, when I was a kid and I didn't have a date on Saturday night, and unfortunately there were more nights that I didn't have a date uh, <laughs> during periods than I had a date, uh, I stayed up and 10 o'clock at night there was one of these great Dracula, uh, Bela Lugosi movies or uh, uh, Carlo, uh, uh, 
the Frankenstein movie, really great stuff. And there's a scene in a Dra- one of the Dracula films where he's about to bite the neck of a girl, uh, and he's, a wolf howls outside, and he says, listen to them. They are the children of the night. They are not alive. They are not dead. They are undead. And that's exactly what monsters are. They become undead. To not be able to love, to not be able to sympathize uh, with the pain of others, to not be able to create, and only to block and destroy, is to live in a kind of a darkness in which you're not dead. You're moving. You have goals. You have needs. But there really is not life there. And I like that word, undead. Uh, In the book, The Z-Wars, it takes place as a diary of a reporter who travels all over the world after the plague has been brought somewhat under control um, to find out how people survived. And uh, it's given short chapters, some of them a little longer, all of them fairly interesting, many of them quite horrifying, by survivors who talked about how they survived and what happened when the plague broke out in their part of the world. And that, to me, is what is so fascinating. Humanity in this particular plague became zombies, undead creatures, in which 99% of humanity was transformed from a potentially loving, caring, creative citizen of their country, member of their family, member of their church affiliation, of their school, all of the things that most of us see as, as making life worthwhile and possible and making us feel alive, all of them become 99% zombies. And to me, that's saying something very important that goes back to what Jim and I were anxious about when our government and our way of life was literally being attacked, uh, given a political name and a political purpose, without regard to how much pain it would cause and how much economic hardship it would cause and who would be hurt by a group of individuals who happily would take us over the edge of, 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 uh, of a fiscal cliff in which our debts would go unpaid, causing potentially, uh, and the economists I read, I tend to believe, I tend to trust them, a worldwide depression. If not a depression, an extremely severe recession that would uh, cause us much grief. Somebody is here. I think it's uh, Jim. Jim? It is. Hi. How are you, Larry? I'm not bad. How are you, Jim? I'm just fine. I've been listening to your, uh, to your discussion of monsters with a lot of interest, and uh, I don't have a great deal to add. Uh, I'm very happy just to go ahead and uh, continue to listen. Uh, but I did uh, – there were the two things that uh, crossed my mind. Uh, one uh, you 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 mentioned sort of in passing uh, 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 Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was uh, it was it was uh, done as a wonderful uh, play last year by the National Theater in London uh-huh. and uh, broadcast 
to, to theaters in this country as well uh, under NT Live. And uh, that was a, uh, of course, the, the Frankenstein creature uh, was uh, a, a monster of sorts who, uh, who was uh, created by science. It, it wasn't yes. something that was in, uh, in uh, uh, contradiction to science or contravening science. It was the creation of a scientist. Absolutely, and is, I think that's an important point. Uh, when it comes to being monsters, I said we all us are potentially monstrous. Yes. And when we look at what scientists have done in the name of knowing something or in the name of carrying out their government's uh, political goals uh, or just by being careless, there can be a tremendous amount of monstrousness there too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the whole debate about the, 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 that scientists had when the atomic bomb was developed, uh, should, it be, uh, should it be dropped? Should we open that Pandora's box? Because when it comes to uh, monstrousness, uh, war ultimately uh, is the organization of monstrousness. It's when societies become dominated by monstrousness. Well, and and for scientists that... to uh, constantly never question or rarely question or debate whether or not the weapons of mass destruction that now dominate uh, war all over the world uh, is absolutely, uh, I think, reflected in Frankenstein. Yes, thank you. Oh, what I was, uh, the other thing that, uh, it, that you've stimulated me to think about is uh, that uh, it, it seems to me that uh, monstrosity as we, uh, experience it in the act in the real world as opposed to in fiction uh, uh, is a uh, it, it seems to me that it is um, the uh, ability of actual human characteristics to be expressed unchecked that is a uh, through the political system uh, of course Hitler is the classic example uh, he, he rose to absolute power, and there was nothing there to uh, to cause him to uh, uh, moderate any uh, any of these uh, characteristics. That I'm afraid that if if we look into ourselves, uh, that uh, they're, they're human characteristics. Well, that's exactly where I want to go. So, thank you for uh, turning well, the direction. Because so I'll, the, I'll shut the monsters. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to. I'm just going to be quiet and listen because I'm. I'm fascinated by your thoughts. See, now what happens in real life is that all of these monsters that are in literature uh, are allegorical monsters. They're metaphorical monsters, but I think they represent a very deep-seated fear and maybe even a need in you, all human beings, to become monsters. And, and I've talked about that in my, all of my shows in one way or another. Our human capacity to dehumanize other human beings is so vast, it's so uh, prevalent. Just listen to the language that people use. Uh, this particular American form of monstrousness, um, 
really, to me, comes out, I, I think there are other reasons. I think that the billionaires uh, who are monstrous in their need for money, there are people, there's an economic monstrousness that I think is going on in the United States in terms of materialism. The need to, to have everything uh, material, whether one needs it or not, uh, it reflects something deep within us that um, makes people who have vast wealth such natural leaders for us, regardless of whether or not their motives are humanistic and creative or whether they're monstrous. So the people who put the money into this tea party, uh, very angry people many, and frightened. And I want to talk about the motives on a human level because what ultimately I think we need to ask you and I as social scientists, as people who work with what we call mental illness, is what are the conditions, social and personal, that allow us to give up our humanity and join the dark side and become monsters? Because Hitler came to power. He ultimately, William Shira's book uh, on, on uh, Nazi, the rise of Hitler and Nazi Party, what's it called, A Thousand Nights or something? I forget the it name of the book. It's a fabulous book. It was a thousand Reich. pages. How I got it's through the that. The rise and uh, fall of the Third Reich. Thank you. The rise yeah. and fall of the Third Reich. Ultimately, Hitler won an election. He was elected by the German people to be Reich Chancellor. The conditions there apparently were right for a man who wrote Mein Kampf. When I was in high school, I read Mein Kampf and wrote a report on it. He didn't hide his agenda. He stated his agenda. It's exactly what he was going to do if and when he took power. And he was really, in many ways, a very principled politician, a monster, but principled. He didn't get into power and say, well, now that I'm in power, I'm going to uh, moderate my views. He carried them out and nearly, very nearly took over the entire world. Yeah. So what, one of the things I think we have to ask is how do these individuals uh, uh, gain power? What are the social conditions and what are the personal needs? And that's why I want to talk some, a bit about Freud tonight and psychoanalysis. Uh, because while they have been largely discredited in the mental health field of late, um, I took a lot of uh, training and I took a lot of I take a lot serious about some of the things that create psychological conditions that make us vulnerable in many ways to those monsters in politics or 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 publicly uh, that we would join and turn our anger and turn our need. Uh, into um, uh, a kind of a collective monstrosity. And ultimately, that's what you and I, I think, were afraid of, a collective monstrosity taking place in America where we always say it can't happen here. Right. And what I think you and I might agree is that we're seeing the potential for it to happen here. Do you agree? I totally agree. Uh, yeah. I I, I think I think that it could. I think that it is uh, at, at least speaking from a uh, from a just a political view. I think it's unlikely to happen. Yeah, I think yeah there the are a lot of things that, that I'm going to talk about tonight. I think that uh, the the new election, the election that just took place yesterday, suggests yeah. that there are still too many people in this country 
uh, who are uh, frightened and angered by, by, by the attempt of the coup that almost took place in Washington and could, could come back again because the same people are there um, uh, and are still being backed by the same money and the same uh, uh, angry patriots uh, in various parts of the country who it seemed to me are still fighting the Civil War. Uh, and, and I, I want to just mention, racism, I think, is still a very deep, powerful factor in the American psyche. And the, the idea we've lost our country when a man of color became the president has caused tremendous panic and fear in the hearts of individuals who have been raised generation after generation to see uh, black people as, uh, as potentially to be slaves, that they are, uh, as our founding fathers made them, four-fifths human. So therefore, they can't vote and they can't have power uh, and, and, <laughs> and they can't be given the same rights uh, as uh, their white masters and their white superiors. Right. So, but uh, but Larry, uh, at first place, it was three fifths, not four fifths. But oh, in the constitution, I, you know, I yeah, keep but, getting that wrong, Jim. <laughs> but uh, the, the, I, I think that it's there's a little more to it than just uh, I, I say just racism, and and I I kind of cringe when I hear myself saying that because it's so horrible. But uh, I, I think that when we when we think about what what is it that makes uh, us uh, human beings uh, isn't it isn't part of it a uh, a fear of the uh, of of people who are different from us in some way not necessarily because they uh, look different but perhaps because they speak a different language because they have different religious values. Uh, various other characteristics. In other words, there's a, I think, a very deep-seated uh, drive to, um, uh, to to be ascendant over people who are not of our tribe. Yes. Now, we, you and I did a nice discussion of Jonathan Haidt's book on evolution right. and the idea that we are tribal animals and we potentially... Um, uh, are threatened by individuals who are of another tribe. However, I think that we have to break it down further into the level of the individual, because while many people in a tribe want to keep their tribe ascendant and are competitive with people from another tribe, that is based on dress or competition for food or territory or whatever it happens to be, uh, the potential to become really murderous and monstrous uh, is not universal within a particular tribe. And often tribes live side by side. They may have skirmishes. But the annihilation of one tribe by another, the idea of trying to get 100% power and dehumanize and control another tribe is a special circumstance. Sure. So while I agree that this is based within us, I want to ask another question. And I want to put it on the level of the individual for a while, where really psychoanalysis goes. And so what I'm going to suggest is that you use the word fear, that we take the word fear and put it 
upfront. I think when human beings are really terrified, when they're really frightened uh, for their lives or for their, uh, um, you know, for the th- their, 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 their loved ones, under that particular emotion, they are capable of, of uh, under the right social circumstances, latching on to individuals and ideas that say, we're going to be dominant and we're going to be invincible. And under those circumstances, and what makes America right now different than Germany between the two world wars, is that our social situation, our economic situation, is threatening to many, but nowhere nearly as devastating as it was during the 1930s when there was a worldwide depression and in Germany added to the fact that they had lost the war and they were being humiliated. And I think there are certain emotions that when you do therapy with people, you see can have started early in life embedded in certain situations and relationships and images that have a tremendous power over their lives and make them then vulnerable. And this is theoretical, by the way. I mean, you know, I can't prove any of this. You can't do a a study of it. But I do believe that when individuals have undergone certain kinds of experiences, the idea of going to the other extreme in some way, it makes them vulnerable to certain political ideas, political leaders. And I want to go through some of the emotions that I think, that I, in terms of that I have worked with uh, people who have really had to work hard to own the emotion and the situation or situations in their lives, within their families, within school, being bullied, in other words, I, one of the things I really didn't like about uh, psychoanalysis was the notion that it's always the mother who fails or the father who fails that all craziness uh, occurs only within the family. Now, a lot of it does and a lot of it did, uh, but I think there are many situations in which children, and I think we have to really look at childhood and ask what kind of situations what kind of emotions can become embedded in a human being as they grow that when in childhood there is no rational or understanding of, of those emotions, that they can't own them so they are them. And the emotions that I think are, are, uh, have to be looked at, and I'm going to look at them now, are things like uh, powerlessness, um, I worked over the years with children who were really seriously abused physically or women who have been abused sexually. I had one woman I worked with for a long time who could never get over the feeling of powerlessness when an older brother crawled into her bed, covered her mouth, pinned her arms at her side, and sexually abused her. And this went on for several years. Uh, the, The... Icing on the cake was when she finally, after several years in desperation, told her mother uh, that it was happening uh, because the brother had said, if you tell uh, mommy what I'm doing, I will kill you. And she had no doubt in her mind that 
he would. She had no doubt. Now, whether or not he would have killed her is another story. But as a child, under those circumstances, she really believed she'd be killed. But finally, she couldn't deal with this anymore, the sense of helplessness, of rage, of powerlessness. And she told the mother, and the mother said, you're making this up which I, if you've ever worked, and I think you have worked with women who have been sexually abused uh, by the father, by older brother, often there's a tremendous denial that it's ever happened or it's, you know, or it's going on. Uh, in, in good positive cases, uh, the mother or the parent who learns of this takes immediate steps and strong steps to end the process. But that betrayal of her, which left her in this powerless, guilt-ridden, shamed situation. I'm now listing a number of the emotions that I believe are so uh, uh, damaging for a child to live with and to become entrenched with. That is, they become part of the, their fiber, their being. And how much it took this woman to tell me about this uh, for fear that I would reject her, that I would see her as the mother saw her, as a liar making up a story and maybe even a slut. Um, shame, an incredibly powerful emotion. Uh, when men are shamed by other men, uh, what was the name of the book? It was a book about the rise of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that went back to the time under uh, Nasser, uh, in which the, anybody in the Muslim Brotherhood, and not that I'm particularly sympathetic to their particular form of, of monstrousness, um, but, but to, to, the, to the time when they were imprisoned and tortured and shamed. Uh, and I think you and I have talked about uh, how unhappy we were with our government taking these same individuals that we captured and saw as monsters and dehumanized them in Guantanamo and shamed them in the most profound ways you could shame Muslim individuals. And, and this great. doesn't get forgotten. And I think it makes people uh, so full of rage and blind hatred that when the right leader and the right organization comes along, I think they become potentially really very dangerous. Uh, endless guilt. Um, so fear, terror, powerlessness, shame. Things that have sort of dropped out of the therapeutic lexicon. Except if you work with individuals who go back into their childhood and start to... to analyze what these emotions as the core of their feeling that prevents them from relationships, that really prevents them from speaking out and being creative, um, how this works. What's never been done in terms of studies that I don't know about, unless somebody can call up and maybe you know, um, how does this ultimately translate into being tempted by individuals who say, we are perfect, we have no guilt. Uh, one of the things that I find remarkable about these politicians is that one in a thousand will say, I made a mistake, I am responsible for my actions. I did something wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. 
they're right, they're perfectly right, they're right all the time, and anybody who disagrees with them is wrong, and wrong all the time. So what I'm suggesting is that we become monsters when our own individual unmet needs, um, and it could be biological too, it could be real hunger, uh, when people are really hungry, those who say, join with me uh, and defeat the enemy and we'll have plenty to eat. And metaphorically, if we become monsters, it's the enemy that we eat. We destroy the enemy by eating them. Uh, cannibalism, uh, when it's been studied, is often has nothing to do with food. It's the eating of the enemy. Um, certain tribes would eat the brain of the enemy in order to become smart uh, eat the, the, the penis of the enemy in order to become sexually powerful. Eat the muscles of the enemy in order to become more powerful. And there's something very interesting that I, I, I forgot to talk about. When we see our enemy and we dehumanize them, we ultimately describe them as more powerful than us. The fear of the Jew is something that's always been astounding to me. Uh, 28 million out of 10 billion people are Jewish. And yet, they're all over the world. Europe, United States, all kinds of places, a notion that the Jews are capable of taking over the world. That we're all rich and powerful. Uh, the Book of Zion, which has been around now in Europe and, and circulated here in the United States. Uh, in Hungary, there's a tremendous rise of anti-Semitism taking place is that the Jews, when they take over, or before they take over, are going to steal your babies and drink their blood and eat them. The idea that the people you are victimizing are zombies who you have to fear, and therefore we have to defeat them and destroy them utterly. And by doing that, we become zombies. So I think the process of... Is the word zombification a good word? What the hell with it. I like the word. We'll turn zombification into a verb. That notion that the enemy is stronger than us and the only way to defeat them is to destroy them utterly, is to reduce them, to, to, to grind them into the dust to make them not human. And this is what frightens me about what's going on in America, because I always take a, took for granted that it was a kind of, uh, uh, while science can run amok and various politicians could run amok, um, I never sensed before that our, literally our government could be taken over by individuals, uh, one of whom said, uh, we got to get something out of this, this mess, even though I don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did a show, my last show was on, on temper tantrums. Uh, the child who throws the temper tantrum, uh, after a while, doesn't even know what the tantrum, temper tantrum is about. Um, I talked a little bit about how you deal with temper tantrums in children. Uh, how do you deal, deal with temper tantrums in individuals who collectively say, we're going to bring down this government because it's not ours? Um, we're going to go after this man, and, and whatever he does, we're going to defeat it. We're going to oppose it, regardless of the consequences to him, 
to the country or to themselves. Uh, that's something that I didn't see really happening uh, in the United States. And what I'm hoping is that there isn't enough yet of a political core to draw people who are frightened and who are guilt-ridden and who are angry uh, into a cohesive whole that can do happen what happened in, in, in uh, Germany, what happened in, in um, uh, China, what happened in Russia, what happens in so many parts of the world, even now. Syria, a prime example of, of monsters uh, creating monsters and becoming monsters themselves. So, I don't know if anybody else is listening. I played golf today, and a friend of mine said that uh, he might listen tonight if he's there. Uh, my friend George, uh, he could call in. Anybody want to call in? 646-716-7756. Well, it's, I think it's maybe time for a cup of tea. Uh, What's your next trip, Jim? Oh, uh, we're going to uh, London. <laughs> How nice. Yeah. Well, yeah that's, just I love over, London. Just going over to see a few plays and, and uh, a new staging of uh, the Magic Flute. and uh, So we'll just be there for a week. The, the Zauberflute? The Zauberflute, yes. I, I never liked it. I don't like... You know what? I have to say, I, I never had a real... Appetite for Mozart. Oh, um, really? Well, recognize him as a great composer, as a genius, but he speaks from a time that I don't relate to anymore. Yeah. You know, I do a show like this. Mozart and zombies really don't go together. <laughs> <laughs> There's no meeting. <laughs> I see Mozart as living at a time where the music says something about the society that he was living in that didn't even exist then, but certainly, certainly I don't see it in my study of history existing now or in the, or in the, in the 20th century. And certainly if you listen to the music of the 20th century, there are no Mozarts. There are some great composers, but their compositions are very, very different in tone and yeah. direction than, than, you know, that kind of beautifully ordered, melodic, structured kind of, uh, of, of stuff. Anyway, let's see. Did I cover everything I wanted to cover? I wanted to mention a book that Helen Merrill Lunt, Helen Merrill Lunt, came across this in the library at my college. It's called On Shame and the Search for Identity. And it literally talks about what happens to an individual who grows up feeling ashamed uh, and becomes ashamed of themselves and becomes ashamed of their family, which happens so often when people are poor, or, or when uh, somebody in the family commits a crime. Uh, what happens to the identity of such an individual? And again, uh, she doesn't connect up to the uh, political uh, danger of an individual who's searching for an identity and is told if you join our party, if you join our cause, uh, you'll never have to feel shame again because we have nothing that we can do that will ever make us ashamed. 
We are perfect beings. We are the overlords, the ubermensch. Um, Peter Marin, wonderful article, appeared in Psychology Today. I don't even know the issue, but um, I have a copy somewhere called Living in Moral Pain. And he dealt with something. He got a lot of flack for it, but I thought it was a great article. Uh, and I haven't talked about it. Let me talk about a couple of minutes. Uh, we train armies to be zombies. A good army, a good soldier is a killer. That's what armies are for. Uh, when the military takes over, the idea is to destroy and utterly destroy the enemy. And in order to take a human being and make them a killer, what you have to do is convince them that their enemy is stronger than they are and utterly merciless towards them, which usually becomes the reality. And we must be the better killers to kill them. Now, I know our soldiers are heroes, but they're also human beings. And what Marin talked about in that article is something I've always believed. And a colleague of mine that I've done some shows with, and I like his book, uh, 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 Lou, Lou uh, Wynn, a uh, wonderful psychologist out in Albuquerque, who has book, written a book now and done very well with it. And the second edition, Healing the Hurting Soul, a survival manual for the black sheep in every family. I told him that that was not politically correct as a title, but he insisted that the metaphor was the right metaphor. But in any event, uh, he works with uh, soldiers at the VA, people who have been injured. And what he discovers is what Marin discovered that while they've been trained to be zombies, they're still human beings, and the people they kill, they very often come to recognize as human like them. And what they are, what we now call uh, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which used to be called uh, war neurosis, which used to be called cowardice, because we've medicalized you know, that idea that uh, the, the, the moral, the, the guy who can't fight is a coward, uh, when in fact often he can't kill anymore and he wants to survive. And you're not in an army allowed to survive. You, your, your goal is the killing of the enemy and the protecting of your homeland uh, without criticism and the following of orders of individuals who, I'm afraid to say it, are often monsters. Um, and he, he tries to get them to see that what many of them are really seeking and they can't get uh, under the label of post-traumatic stress disorder and the constant parades and the constant turning them into heroes and individuals who were completely justified in doing what they did uh, was uh, forgiveness. When I worked with Vietnam vets from Vietnam who were on drugs and doing all kinds, I discovered that because I had a whole bunch of them in the clinic where I worked in Flushing, where they came back after the war. Uh, none of these guys who go off to war, which is the sixth ring of hell, come out of hell uh, as they went in. And so much of, of uh, Lou Wynn's work and my experience and Peter Marin is that these guys are now living with moral pain. 
particularly in a war like Vietnam or even uh, now uh, Afghanistan, especially Iraq, where so many of the soldiers and the citizens who sent them uh, are really not um, sure about the justification for the war. So to admit uh, that I've watched my buddies be killed and I've killed others for a cause or for a reason that I now know not to be valid is to cause tremendous guilt and tremendous shame. And that's very hard to even discuss, don't you think? I do. Um, and I've worked with a lot of these people. Uh, when, when I was in the VA, I spent, as you know, much of my career in the VA. Yeah. And you agree, then? Uh, that that, 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 that dynamic is very much a part of what they can't get around. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, as somebody, I, I spent uh, part of my Army uh, time uh, in Vietnam, uh, part of that in combat. Did you? So, oh, yeah. So I'm very familiar with uh, some of the, intimately familiar with the uh, some of the emotions that uh, people who are survivors of combat um, do feel and suffer from. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my first clinical teachers was a fabulous woman whose name just flew out of my head. Uh, she taught the Rorschach course in my Ph.D. program. And she became very famous uh, evaluating um, homecoming pilots from the war uh, for their fitness to fly in a commercial aviation. Mm. And what she discovered was interesting, and she was brought on by uh, uh, United or Eastern, I forget, one of the big airlines, when one of the pilots who had been a real hotshot ace, double, triple ace, came back, and he became a, a pilot uh, for an airline, and he tried to fly his plane under the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh. And the plane, the tail hit, the plane went down, and they were all killed. Oh. And they couldn't understand how could this great pilot, how could this fabulous guy cause such an accident? What kind of recklessness? And what uh, she discovered, Florence Halpern was her name. How could I forget her name? She was wonderful. She was just the most humanistic wonderfully bright person what she discovered is that many of the guys who flew and many of the guys who fought in war really never fired their gun at the enemy their goal was to not be labeled coward and get out of the war with their skin right the guys who were the hot shots were very often very reckless um short-sighted individuals who were thrilled by the chase, who really loved the idea of the fight, and really got a tremendous kick out of killing other people. And that made them great to be your general or to be your fighter in war, but it really didn't make them particularly uh, appropriate to take 200 people on an airplane for a ride who only want to get off that plane in the same condition they got on the plane. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. What we want are well-skilled cowards in that cockpit. 
who say, I want to go home to my family, and I want all these people to get off the plane and say thank you for a good flight. Right. And, and, and that wasn't the case. But none of this really gets into the literature, because the moment you say things like this, the political opposition, uh, the, the, the need to continue justifying these kind of social policies from generation to generation, uh, just uh, become enraged. Because if we all became non-zombies, if, we, if there was no zombie, zombification going on, it would be very hard to uh, throw a war. Yep. All right, uh, one more note for you and for anybody else listening to this. I've discovered that if I do a show on Saturday afternoon or Tuesday morning, uh, I get the same number of listeners as if I do Wednesday night. Now, I like doing Wednesday night. I've gotten used to Wednesday night. But my wife, you've met my wife. Yes, indeed. Uh, wants to be taken for dinner on Wednesday night. <laughs> and of all the people I listen to and love and respect, it's my wife. And sure. when she says, let's go for dinner on a Wednesday night, dinner it is, darling. So I'm going to start doing the show at other times uh, and experiment with different times. What I usually have is a lot of dead time, uh, let's say in the middle or late Saturday afternoon or even many Sunday afternoons. And I think I'm going to try to do my next show, which I haven't even thought about yet uh, at that time. Uh, okay. So uh, um, if I you're will, available, because I, uh, I love I having you available. as my alter ego on the, on the uh, show. I, I, uh, I, uh, I, I will have some downtime myself in the next week or so. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll I'm not sure. You. I have to think about, uh, you know, uh, I need another topic to come to mind. This one really started to get me excited when I thought about the, the you know, the Z Wars, because that, that picture really says that all of humanity can turn to be, or virtually all of humanity can be uh, zombified. Right. And, and that's what happens in the book. It happens in the movie, but then that, that cheap ending with Brad Pitt saving the world. Uh, the book ends much more ambiguously, where human beings have learned to fight the zombies uh, and, and, and in some cases win, but it's not at all clear whether or not in the end humanity uh, will survive at all. So it's a, a really interesting book. Um, not the best written book, but I thought it kind of ingenious, especially the, the metaphorical aspects, uh, which I've taken to be the basis of this show, which is that the potential all over the world for uh, a, a kind of political process that takes vulnerable people, uh, turns them into zombies uh, with their participation, uh, and while the rest of us, by the way, stand by, don't speak out, and don't do anything about it until it's too late. Uh, that message in that book, uh, done metaphorically, done you know, symbolically, I think was a powerful message. So it's time for a cup of tea and a piece of cake. And I'm going to say goodnight to you, Jim. Okay. And I'm going to say goodnight to whoever else is out there in the great Etherland. Larry, it's been great. Cyberspace, wherever the hell that happens to be. Take care and good night.